0: Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. I was a financial reporter for 20 years and one of the things I loved most about it was the data. There were ample prognosticators and pontificators and salespeople, but at the end of the day, there were also quarterly earnings, regulatory filings and analyst reports. Education can feel like a wasteland when it comes to market data, which is why I am so pleased to have Maria Spies, co-founder and co-CEO of Hole in IQ, as our guest today. Holin IQ synthesizes the many, many markets inside the education and learning world sizing them, slicing and dicing them, and looking at what is happening in every corner of the world. It seemed just wrong to
1: me that there was more amazing market intelligence for the beauty industry than there was for education. You know, such an important pillar and infrastructure or support foundation for pretty much every industry and the world of work, social, etc. So we really felt like there was a big opportunity here and to solve a big problem, actually.
0: And IQ has created an open source taxonomy for the future of education, which they present like a periodic table. Check it out in the show notes. They offer rich data, such as the fact that the global healthcare market is worth $8 trillion compared to the global education market, which is $6 trillion. But, and here's the interesting bit, the market capitalization of global healthcare companies is $5 trillion compared to education, which is $300 billion. Or, there are 20 EdTech unicorns around the world who have collectively raised over $9 billion of total funding in the last decade or the fact that they have downgraded the size of the global education and training market. Who would have thought that? Today, we discuss how COVID has affected the education market, including venture capital spend, government funding, and the explosion of public-private partnerships throughout the world. We talk learning passports, AI, and we unpack why education is an invisible sector and how that is and is not changing. Finally, we discuss five predictions about the future of learning, including what people hope will happen and what they expect to happen. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, thank you for having me. You provide market intelligence, a treasure trove of data and analysis to the education market. You started this business because it did not exist. It is slightly bonkers that it did not exist. There is so much market intelligence for financial markets, for the healthcare industry. Why not education? It seemed just
1: wrong to me that there was more amazing market intelligence for the beauty industry than there was for education. You know, such an important pillar and infrastructure or support foundation for pretty much every industry and the world of work, social, et cetera. So we really felt like there was a big opportunity here and to solve a big problem, actually.
0: And what kind of demand have you seen for the data and for the analysis and from whom?
1: Thousands and thousands of people are interested in trying to get a handle on the complexity of the education market. It's not just one thing. It's not just one geography. Obviously, it's all geographies, every single market. Uh, It's a very big industry. It's a $10 trillion industry by 2030. And the sort of segmentation of the education industry is quite complex. There's education with a capital E, the market itself, the business models and so on. And then there's learning with a small L. This is the learning processes. And from top to bottom, that's a very, very big industry. So every organisation from education companies themselves, technology companies, investors, universities, governments, of course, suppliers even, really super interested in understanding where they sit and what is swirling around them in terms of change, because you know there's a lot of change happening and it's hard to keep a handle on the trends that are going on that are impacting different parts of the sector. And so that's what we provide, not only the billions literally of data points, but also we analyze
0: what's happening in markets and provide that in a way that makes sense. It's a bit of an understatement to say that COVID-19 has changed a lot, What do you see in the data? And I'd love to start with money, EdTech VC, government spending, public-private partnerships. Where is the money flowing as a result of this incredible disruption that we've seen this year?
1: Firstly, a lot more venture capital, a lot more capital flowing into education. Investors who have not invested in education before thinking, wow, okay, I want to look at this sector because this is important some of it perhaps, is because they're experiencing the disruption to the education system through their own experience or the experience of their family. And so education can be like an invisible sector, traditionally a public sector, but everyone is is impacted now in terms of either training or formal education. And so a lot more new investors coming into this space, impact investors in particular, but also general investors. I mean, in terms of the money itself and where it's heading, It's an acceleration of the trend to investment in corporate training or ongoing upskilling. That is an area of huge importance because it's directly related to jobs. In terms of investment, we're seeing growth and movement back into B2B. Now, this is not necessarily a news story, but... Generally, in sort of startup land, I guess, in all sectors, people are really looking for a B2C market, like after school tutoring is huge, of course, it's a B2C market. But now over the past sort of 12 months, we are seeing a lot of investment in B2B models. And that's obviously because schools, universities, Corporates are reaching out into the technology space to get solutions for digital, online, blended learning and other sort of solutions that are technology-led. And so the B2B market has grown a lot. We've definitely seen that. In terms of government spending, this is related. We've resized the market recently to upgrade the spending on edtech between now and 2025. And part of that is obviously the impact of COVID, not just now, but even when everyone goes back to normal, what we do expect to see is a continuation of the use of technology more deeply embedded into learning processes. Not that everyone will be online all the time, but certainly technology will continue to be a more integrated aspect of learning, whether it be in corporate education, K-12 or higher ed, or anything in between. And government spending on what we're calling learning infrastructure, there's a big infrastructure spend to be made over the next couple of years. We're going to see governments spending a lot more on learning infrastructure, and that is access. It could be internet access even. It could be digitization of classrooms, building in technology into physical spaces so that we can have a blended opportunity for learning, which is you know definitely something that's going to come sooner rather than later. So digital infrastructure spending by governments, we're seeing a lot of that. And can you put some numbers on this? At the moment, digital spend as a proportion of all education spending is about 2.7%. And what we're expecting is that by 2025, that spend will be more like 5.2%. It's still a tiny amount, right? Really, this is quite conservative still. But that translates into just over $400 billion in ed tech spend, in digital spend in education. In terms of venture capital spending, what we're seeing here is already at the end of quarter three, 2020, the world has spent just over about $8.3 billion in edtech venture capital. That's just venture capital spending. And that is already equivalent at the end of quarter three to the whole of 2018 and 2019 was $7 billion.
0: Let me just go back to one data point you just gave us. Digital spend is a proportion of education spend, 2.7%. Give us a sense as to what that is in the healthcare market. Give us some context for how digitized this market is. In other industries,
1: knowledge industries, content industries, for example, it could be books or music or movies and things like that. Digital spend, even in consumer areas, digital spend is more like 25 to 30% of overall spend. And so education has got a long way to go still. It's on par with infrastructure like construction, <laughs> which is essentially, you know, a physical industry. I expect that we will see more spending and more integration of technology as a normalized sort of way of learning in the later part of the flow. So in higher education, vocational workforce You know, we're going to see much, much more digital spend and online and blended models, immersive models and so on. In K-12, still, of course, the physical co-location is important, but I think we'll see a backbone of digital supporting and integrating with the physical classroom spaces.
0: You did some research at the very beginning of COVID, which I recall being very surprised by because you had surveyed over 2,000 people in the education market. And the feeling, and this was the very beginning of COVID, wasn't this is the opportunity of a lifetime. It was, we see a lot of potential pain. And so talk me through what you found there and then whether you've done any kind of update on that.
1: Yeah, we do have around 2,000 people who are education leaders from all different parts of the sector around the world on our global panel. And every so often we ask them for their experiences and insights into how they're experiencing certain aspects of education. At the very beginning of COVID, it was in March 2020, we, we surveyed this panel and asked them about whether they're expecting disruption in their sector and if so, when and we also asked them about whether they felt covid was was going to be short-term or long-term positive or negative impact and so what we found from the results of this survey was about 85% of respondents expected disruption to their part of the education market before 2025 Remembering that this was at the beginning of COVID, really, most of the world was not hugely affected then, it was just beginning. But even then, 85% expected disruption within three years, 50% of those expecting disruption within the next two. So people in the education sector, leaders in the education sector were already seeing the signs of disruption. And that can mean different things, of course. Disruption can mean different things in different parts of the sector. We asked them about how they felt COVID was going to impact their business or their institution. And the vast majority felt that would have a hugely negative short-term impact and also a negative long-term impact, but less negative, except for EdTech, who felt that it could have a positive impact in the long term and investors in the education space who felt that it was a sort of middling, no impact, no negative, no positive, just the same.
0: So what are you seeing in terms of government policy? They are the biggest spenders by a long shot in this space. What's happening there? Government policy and regulations can make and break
1: education markets. It's amazing to see that when, for example, education policy changes, what happens in the market, both public and private. So in 2019, the Japanese government decided that coding and English language would be mandatory in Japanese schools from year three. The impact in the market in preparation for that policy change was significant. And so a lot of players moving into the market you know, games companies moving in to teach English and and coding and so on. And so, government policy can't be underestimated. It's it's super important. And you know, we see things like, for example, one of the largest education markets in the world, India, with the largest group of people under the age of twenty five in the world, just recently released its new national education policy, the first education policy in thirty four years, and. It's very interesting because that government policy changed its opinion or its its regulation on, for example, online learning. Before that in universities, there was a limit of 20% of online delivery in degree programs. So students could not do more than 20% of their degree program online. Firstly, they abolished that completely and the Minister for Education jumped up and just, you know, announced that they would like to see a million Indians studying their degrees online by 2025. That's a big turnaround. And so just think about the consequences of that in the market. That's where we see a lot of activity in public-private partnerships where universities are now open and available to to create a, a much bigger market for themselves but then, you know, historically don't have the capacity or capabilities to deliver online. And so they partner with, for example, an OPM provider to support that whole new market for them. You know, we see where policy changes, funding follows. Traditionally, most governments fund education in K-12, vocational and higher ed. And they're three distinct buckets and they're funded in different ways, typically, even by different departments sometimes. And so what we're seeing now is governments thinking differently about the way in which they're going to fund education more broadly even. So the, the German government, for example, takes its responsibility with access to education in pre-COVID access to education means, you know, the right number of schools in the right places and freely available to, you know, the, the population. But in COVID, access to the internet is access to education. And so they're building in low cost internet access for children so they can undertake learning. That's a different way of thinking about education
0: funding. Let's talk a little bit more about these public-private partnerships, the higher ed market, the upskilling training market. What kind of partnerships are you seeing and are you seeing the same things happening in different regions of the world?
1: I think different geographies have different approaches to education, different cultures And histories of education. So it does depend on the market. For example, Europe is a fairly conservative education market. It is used to and has expectation of free public education and private education is not as popular. It's not as big because the public purse is covering education, whereas in other markets such as Asia, even North America, it's a more privatised system and and Latin America as well to some extent. And so it does depend on the market. But generally we are seeing public institutions, and I'm more at the higher education level than at K-12, higher education institutions partnering with private providers, but it's a very specific type of partnership. So partnering for online learning institutions who would like to deliver either in niche areas or broadly end-to-end online experience but they don't have the infrastructure they don't have the skills they're just not set up to do that that's not their history and so they're partnering with you know OPM providers for some or all of those services that whole segment has been growing very rapidly over the last 10 years it's more prominent in markets like Australia, the US and the UK. It is less prominent in Europe, uh, although it exists of course, and a little bit in Asia, but I expect we're going to see a lot more of that. Just thinking back to the national education policy in India I talked about, we are going to see a lot of public-private partnerships in India because of that policy and the opening up of online education. Universities want to go online, so OPM partners can help them with that. Universities also are seeking to build very relevant disciplinary areas, you know, short-form learning rather than long-form education because getting their graduates jobs is very important and it's becoming much, much clearer expectation from consumer markets and also governments. And so boot camp partnerships, so boot camps traditionally ran, you know, intensive tech Type programs, whether it be coding or machine learning or e-marketing or something, you know, short 12-week programs and a job at the end of it, universities are now partnering with boot camps at a rapid rate. And so in the first half of 2020, we saw 47 new boot camp partnerships with universities from 13 the previous year, Uh, you know, so it's really ramped up. And bootcamps themselves, their whole model has been challenged because they're typically on campus and they've pivoted to online. This is general assembly, you know, and so on, those big bootcamp providers. But they're also seeing the opportunity in B2B rather than B2C markets. And so partnering with universities to embed inside curriculum. And so say, for example, you're doing a Bachelor of, you know, computer engineering. One of those courses inside that program might include a deep dive intensive three week bootcamp. And at the end of that, you get a digital badge for machine learning as well as, you know, your degree program at the end. So some of these morphing models, it's really interesting, are coming out of these partnerships.
0: There's so much conversation here in the UK and in the US about sort of the death of higher ed, both the business model and potentially sort of that credentialing need. What do you see?
1: I don't see the death of higher education. What I see is a reshaping of the post-secondary market. And so that is a broad statement. Post-secondary is everything from formal higher education, university learning, vocational colleges, community colleges, micro-credential sort of upskilling in the Coursera and edX and Udemy and so on. So we will see a reshaping of that whole space. At the moment and for a very long time, universities have become the magic solution to anything post-school. And I think that universities over the past probably 40 years have been asked to do things that they were never designed for <laughs> and solve problems at a scale they were never designed for. The model doesn't solve for that. And so I think that's part of the problem that the university have been facing for some time. And so I do think that we will see a reshaping of that market. We may see segmentation of even the university sector, if you want to call it that, through to more differentiation between different types of universities. I think that's what we'll see potentially mergers. I mean, there are a lot of closures of universities around the world, but we might see more sort of focused universities that look more like halfway between a university and a community college where they don't have the requirement of all the deep research, but actually they're focused on professional skills and learning. It's not an either or. I think it's a messy space and it's easy to say that's going to die and that's going to grow. I mean, I don't don't think that's going to happen. What I do see is the future is more together than alone. What's super interesting is the infrastructure on which this will be built. What's the unit of currency that's important? Is the unit of currency a bachelor's degree or a master's degree? Um, everyone knows what that is. it's all well accepted, but actually that unit of currency is changing a little and we are seeing credible alternatives. And even in you know many parts of the world, governments, industry and education sector are getting together to start redesigning that infrastructure. For a smaller unit, You could call it a micro-credential, I'm not going to call it that, but a smaller unit to recognise skills, to recognise knowledge, to recognise learning. And so once that new unit of currency is accepted across different sectors, then I think we're going to see something different.
0: And you had a metaphor of a pane of glass. Sometimes I liken the
1: formal education sector to a very thick pane of glass it is solid it's in one piece you can't break it into pieces it's it's one big thing and it's very inflexible very difficult to change unless you smash it apart which you don't want to do and then post-formal education it's it's like that pane of glass shatters into a trillion pieces and that's how I've always envisaged the the sort of upskilling space it is just totally fragmented And one learning experience means nothing in another context because it's just so individual. Even the market itself is very fragmented with lots of different providers doing very nuanced different things. And what we're seeing, I think, is that pane of glass becoming more flexible and broken up into a few more pieces and the informal post-secondary learning space becoming a little more structured. But both of those things need an underpinning infrastructure to support that, to recognize training and learning and knowledge. So for example, in the US, there's an initiative called the Learning and Employment Record, LER. And it is an initiative between government, between industry and between education to translate a learner's full education, training and work experience across all those things. This is unusual. It's not just their education, but it's training and it's their work experience into a record of transferable skills that will be recognised by industry, by employers, by other education institutions. And it's built on the blockchain. This is very interesting because it's not just one provider saying, I've got a digital badge. It's the government and employer groups and education industry saying, Okay, guys, let's get together and design something here. Singapore has already done this in their Singapore skills passport. Again, it's a government initiative with input from different parts, of education and industry as well, where every Singaporean citizen gets an allocation of education credits, and they can use those and learn at universities or at a training provider or at a MOOC or whatever. And it goes into their skills passport and it's recognised by employers. It's a new infrastructure to recognise skills, knowledge and education. The USA's Open Skills Network is another example of that. The American Council on Education, quite a conservative body. They've got a big blockchain initiative because they know that a new infrastructure will be required. It's not going to be go to your university and get your transcript printed off anymore. And then hopefully, you know, cross your fingers that an employer will recognize that university. It's not going to be the infrastructure of the future. It's under the radar right now, but it will punch through soon and it'll be accepted and then we're in a whole new world. And that's fine because universities can continue to do exactly what they're doing as long as at some point in time, the way in which they deliver their programs and bachelor's degrees, master's degrees or certificates, whatever it may be, are also able to translate back
0: to that new infrastructure. Let's talk about the Education 2030 project. I'd love to hear what you were trying to do and how you went about doing it? Because I think it says a lot about how you all work with data and with analysis.
1: There's always a lot of talk about the future of education and people, hundreds and hundreds of surmising about what it might look like and, and, and so on and so on. But it still was a sort of a very messy, fragmented space. And what we decided to do was take a data-led approach. And our question um, to the machine, if you want to call it that, was, What is the world saying about the future of education? And so we took around five, it could have been even 10,000, I can't remember, articles, papers, journal articles, news articles, books that... Used the frame, the future of education, and we put it through a massive machine learning process. It was absolutely fascinating. There were definitely clear themes. And then we started to pull those together and humanise what they were really talking about and what that meant. So that was a sort of top-down human analysis on top of that bottom-up machine process. And th- what fell out of those two analysis processes was the five scenarios for education in 2030.
0: Okay, so why don't we talk through the five? The first one's pretty easy, so we can get through that one quickly. The first scenario is education as usual.
1: You know, what we looked at here was not just education in itself, but the context in which education is delivered. So in education as usual, the world economy is steady growth, you know, things are moving okay. There's no real impetus for change. And education primarily stays at it is its status quo. And there were quite a number of that sort of thematic. The underpinning structure of education is as usual.
0: What is your second scenario? it's
1: my favorite regional rising and this is where by 2030 world economies have become increasingly integrated along regional lines demographic changes have happened of course in all these scenarios and what we see is nations starting to work together to cooperate and collaborate along those regional lines and you know it's it's super fascinating that we're seeing all of this happening, it's all playing out. And so, for example, just a couple of months ago, not even maybe even last month, the ASEAN countries got together and they have now launched their Technical Vocational Education Council to harmonise regional vocational initiatives to respond to changing la- labour market demands in the region. And that means that vocational education in the ASEAN region is going to be interoperable essentially. So if you're training to be a nurse in Vietnam, you will be recognised in Cambodia, you'll be recognised in Singapore, et cetera, because they've harmonised their vocational qualifications. That means jobs. That means you can move labour around where you need it. This is huge. And so regional rising is where economies cooperate along these types of lines. And, you know, I think, well, we see a lot of these examples all around the world.
0: Okay, scenario number three. So three is
1: global giants. This is the scenario where globalization has brought the world closer together by 2030 rather than separated. Integration of international trade, technology, investment, And so multilateral agreements are in place, free trade, you know, it's a much more interconnected world. And in this scenario, global giants really are the winners. I think someone predicted this. I can't remember who some time ago that by, you know, 2030 or 2050, there'll be, you know, 10 mega universities in the world and they'll have a million students each, you know, global giants in education, maybe global giants in technology. Global giant employers, we'll see how that unfolds. We are seeing global giants. I mean, I know people are still dismissive, but look at Coursera and and so on. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of learners.
0: All right, let's get on to scenario number four. So scenario number four is the most popular in all the votes
1: and all around the world, the peer-to-peer scenario. And this is where, by 2030, the sort of global peer-to-peer economy has just gone mainstream. It's an accepted way to live, to work, to learn, to earn. So powered by declining transaction costs, ubiquitous connectivity, peer-to-peer exchange of goods. You know, we're seeing this all over the institution has been disintermediated. People don't trust it anymore. Power shift has been decentralized. Blockchain has risen. And really, if you want to be an expert in something, you want to learn something, then you find the expert and you learn from them. There are a lot of platforms around like this now, a lot. If you want to learn Russian, then you can find a person who speaks Russian and wants to learn English. And then you peer-to-peer you know, learn from each other. Why would you do anything else? And it's free, of course. They've got a business model somehow, um, but it's a peer-to-peer economy. This is Uber and this is Airbnb, and this is where people can actually sort of exchange through platform. And so, why not exchange knowledge? A big problem, perhaps, with this is the you know recognition. If you want recognition for learning, and that's what we were talking about before in terms of blockchain and so on like that. But that this is the most popular scenario of 2030, according to all our votes, people like the idea that learning is between people.
0: And I think that's really interesting. That is very interesting. Do they like the idea or they think that's the idea that's most likely to happen? It's a preference, Likelihood
1: was a very different (laughs) outcome in terms of votes.
0: Okay, let's get to the fifth scenario and then we're going to go through the votes. So what was the fifth scenario? The fifth scenario is robo-revolution.
1: And robo-revolution is where the advances in artificial intelligence in particular have just continued on their trajectory. And so they've brought really significant benefits to the world by 2030. It knows where you're at, what you know Where the gaps are, it can suggest learning, you know, not just enhancements, but led by. There was a very strong support for this scenario in some geographies. China was a big supporter of a robo-revolution 2030 scenario. Other countries were not particularly happy with
0: the potential of this, or it wasn't their preferred scenario. Which did people want to happen? Which did they think were likely to happen? And which were the most interesting regional differences? In terms of preferences, it was definitely
1: peer-to-peer was the largest preference, followed by regional rising, and then I think global giants, then rubber revolution, and then education as usual in terms of preference. In terms of likelihood, education as usual got top, top mark. People felt they wanted change, we needed change, but they were less optimistic about change. You know, we were doing this in 2019, and so 2030 is only essentially 10 years away. And so people felt that given the historical lack of innovation, that how would you move from what we've got today, for example, to a peer-to-peer model by 2030? Of course, the reality is that all these futures will be with us in 2030 in different ways, in different parts of the sector, in different geographies and in different intensities. It's not going to be one dominant future, I I would say.
0: All right, we are at the end here. I'm going to ask you three super easy questions, though since you're used to relying on so much data, they might seem quite hard. What is your favourite book about learning? I do
1: like the Clay Christensen book. They're not really about learning, but they are about understanding the dynamics of innovation and disruption. Uh, I do think that there's something very important to, to look at in terms of the future of models of education. And that's not learning, it's education. There's an education industry and there's the way people learn. And so there are two different things. And so those books about business model disruption are very interesting to me.
0: So that would be The Innovator's Dilemma, The Innovator's Solution, The Prosperity Paradox. He actually has one called Disrupting Class, which I did not know. Yeah, remember. that's right. I was then going to ask you what your favorite book, Not About Learning, was. The sad story is that I haven't read a novel or any sort
1: of book other than academic papers in a very long time as I'm currently doing my doctorate. So academic papers is what I read, um, and I, I, I'm looking forward to the day that I can pick up a fiction book again. <laughs>
0: Well, I fear that that might be the answer to our final question, which is what are you binge watching? I've been binge watching The Crown. My daughters are
1: keen on it. And so I've been watching a little bit of that. Not too much, though.
0: Maria, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been great. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. A lot of things struck me about this conversation. The first was the idea that education is an invisible sector. One that is fundamental to every single person's life and yet remains under digitized, underfunded, and underappreciated, quite frankly. The second was the idea of short and long form education long form being the traditional degree, and short form being the credentials from new skills or knowledge or training received. I agree that long form is being broken up while the post university market, which has been wildly fragmented, is starting to take more shape. Finally, I found it a bit depressing that people around the world hope that the future of learning is peer-to-peer, akin to Airbnb or Uber, where you go to an expert and not an institution for insight and learning, but that they expect it will be education as usual, incremental change at the margin. That data was collected pre-COVID, so I wonder whether that might change. I'm pretty sure Maria and Patrick will try to find out, and I'm sure they'll share it with us. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.